Good evening. Good to see you all here this evening. It's uh, encouraging to see all the faces, and we're glad you're here this evening. Um, the uh, topic for tonight's uh, lesson was uh, given under duress. Uh, so, um, so I will uh, I will uh, take Sonny's lead, and I will uh, defer my lesson on living stones until a further time uh, when that lesson's ready. So tonight we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter ten. At the end of Hebrews chapter ten. So a little survey um, before we get started, and if you're curious, First uh, Peter chapter two is the living stones. That'll be a future lesson. Um, Hebrews chapter ten tonight. Um, just a, a quick survey. Uh, who in here has had difficulty, has had any problems in life? Right? Um, who here has struggled with what to do in difficult times in their life? Um, I, I think this is a ubiquitous problem that we as humans share, right? We all have times in our life where we just struggle. We feel like we're hitting our head against a wall. Uh, we feel like things are just not going right. Um, that the world is against us, and it is, literally, um, but that, that we're really kind of stuck. We're in a quagmire. Um, and the church and the believers that the, the book of Hebrews was written to felt the very same way. Um, and whoever wrote Hebrews wrote it to them to, to try and encourage them, uh, to give them a lead, to give them guidance, and what to do when things felt like just everything was out of whack. Nothing was, was quite right. Um, everything that they tried to do really didn't end up well. Um, and so we're going to look at a passage in chapter 10 of Hebrews. And we're going to go through the passage um, in fair detail. It's only a few verses. Um, and we're going to talk through exactly how uh, this passage at the end of chapter 10 can address our needs as, believing, uh, as believers, um, as those who sometimes struggle with things that just aren't quite right. Um, difficult times, uh, loss, uh, choices that we make that, uh, that didn't go well, um, things, friends that are failing us. Um, these are all difficulties. And the passage here in the, the end of chapter 10 um, will help us with that. So let's take a look at verses 32 through 39 of Hebrews chapter 10, the last eight verses. But remember the former days. When, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. 
So we see that the difficulties that have come about in verses 32 and 33 are actually difficulties that they have in making the right choice. They've been persecuted. They've been uh, attacked. Uh, they've been uh, given grief and made uh, spectacles of, literally in a physical sense. And either they were made spectacles of or they joined those who were being made spectacles of. And here the, the very visual sense is it's a parade. But it's not a parade of celebration. It's not a parade of, of joy, uh, of, of wonder. It's a parade of ridicule. It's a parade uh, of prisoners, of those who were lost in battle, being walked through town um, as the spoils of war. But we see here that in verses 32, that they were former days um, when they endured great sufferings and a great conflict. And we see that after, in verse 32, after being enlightened, this is the same term that was used in John 1 and verse 9 where it says, the true light illumines everyone. Christ brought life and immortality to light, according to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10. That the angels, even in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1, the angel made the earth bright with his glory. But ultimately, in Revelation 21 and 22, we see that God is the New Jerusalem's light, and he will be our light. There is no other source of light. And those same words that are used in Revelation to show the light that God will be to the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem are used here in verse 32. We are enlightened, and we're not enlightened with a physical light, with a, with a, uh, the physicists would know better than I, uh, whatever the, the way, you know, whether they're waves or whatever they are, light is, I don't know that we really quite know exactly what light is even now, but um, whatever God has made light to be, right, that we can see, we can look around and see us, that's not the light that we have as Christians. The light that we have as Christians is eternal, and the source of that light is not a light bulb, but is the creator of the universe, is God himself. And as he is our light now, he will continue to be that light, even in the hereafter, once we've been uh, we join with him in the hereafter. But turning down in 33, we see that we talked about the public spectacle. An interesting thing in several of these terms that are used in this pa these passages and these verses are what's called a hapax legomenon, which is a $10 word just meaning it only occurs once. Right. So we look at this, this term of a public spectacle, um, and that public spectacle doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, but when we look at it here, it, it's very clear that it's something that's meant to be a, a point of ridicule, right? Somebody who's put on a pedestal not for, for rejoicing or for celebration, but for laughing, for uh, deriding in who they are and what they've done. So we're public spectacles not, because, not just because of what we've done or what we believe, but also because we share with those who are also public spectacles. How many of us, if we saw a parade going through town uh, making fun of somebody or some group, would consciously join that group, would consciously jump on the bandwagon and say, I want to be part of that. I want to be laughed at. I want rotten eggs to be thrown at me. I want uh, various uh, you know, things hurled in my direction and laughter and, and uh, mocking. I, I want to be a part of that. Who would choose that? Well, in this lesson, of course, that's a ridiculous question. Nobody would choose that. And yet we see exactly here that the choice that the believers had was that they, in fact, did that. 
that when there was a public spectacle of other believers, they didn't refuse them and shun them like Peter did with Christ um, and deny who they are and, and deny that they knew them, but they joined with them. They jumped on that same bandwagon and they followed even in their own derision. Um, the world was laughing at them and mocking them. And that's the idea here, that they were willing to do that with their fellow believers. And in fact, they are called sharers in the same verse in 33, that they are uh, partly by becoming sharers with those who are so treated. The, sh the word sharer there has a, a, a broad meaning, and it really means fellowship. And here in the, uh, you've heard the term maybe koinonia, um, where they have things in common. And in fact, over and over, um, we see that that word is translated as fellowship rather than sharing. In Acts 2.42, uh, the new Christians after the, the day of Pentecost, the first uh, gospel sermon, they had everything in fellowship, everything in common, and they were devoted to fellowship in Acts 2.42. And that word fellowship there in Acts 2.42 is exactly the same word that's used here in verse 33. In 1 Corinthians 1, 9 and 10, uh, sorry, verse 9 of chapter 1 and verse 16 of chapter 10, we are called to have fellowship with Christ. And that's exactly the same fellowship that we have with fellow believers here um, in Hebrews chapter 10. And in fact, we have fellowship with the light in 1 John 1, 6 and 7. And that fellowship is not just a passing or a, a, a superficial fellowship. It's a deep bond, a bond between two believers. And so let's continue in verse 34. They showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of the property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. What is that better possession? What is that lasting possession that we have? It's not something that we can see or touch, not something that we can feel or smell. It's nothing to do with our senses here. But in fact, um, we see that in chapter uh, 2 of Acts and verse 45, that possession that they have there where they were giving their possessions um, and distributing the proceeds, that's the same idea as a possession. But it's not a physical possession in this passage. It's a lasting one. It's one that goes well beyond this physical existence, and it goes into the hereafter. So as believers, they were willing to undergo this persecution, this trial, because of this promise, because of this lasting possession. And so they were charged, however, even though they were confident in their belief, there was a doubt. There was a hesitation. There was a, a reluctance on some of the believers and so in verse 35, we have a charge, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And again, this is only this throw away only happens twice in the New Testament. And the other throw away is when Bartimaeus was called by Christ. He threw off his cloak. And it has a casual sloughing off, a casual um, something that doesn't really matter, something that's not important, um, something that doesn't really deserve attention. And are we casting off our confidence? Are we throwing it away like a piece of trash? Do we not value the confidence that we have and understand where our confidence is, not in ourselves, but in God who has promised us? And so throwing away our confidence, are we doing that? Are we, are we forgetting that great reward, reward that we have? And in fact, the word confidence itself there is not just self-confidence. It's not the idea of, of because of my abilities, or because of something I, done, I have done, or because of something I've earned. 
But the idea of confidence there is actually the freedom to speak boldly. It's the same word that was used of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 and 13 when they were accused of being uneducated and ignorant men, yet they were speaking with confidence. And the confidence they were speaking with um, is because that they were speaking with the Holy Spirit from verse 8 in chapter 4. The Holy Spirit had filled them and given them the words to speak. And those words that they had spoken confounded the rulers of the time because they were speaking with intelligence. They were speaking with erudition, and they knew what they were saying, but it was because of the Holy Spirit that was speaking through them. And that Holy Spirit was giving them the confidence, was the source of that confidence, and enabling them to speak boldly. And it's that same confidence here that's implicit in the idea in verse 35. Don't throw that away. The Holy Spirit is the confidence that you have. The promise that God has made to you is the source of your confidence, not what you've done, not who you are, or what you think you can accomplish. But that confidence comes from being a follower of Christ. And in fact, we see in verse 36, we have need of endurance, even with our confidence, even with our belief in what's coming in the hereafter, we still need to follow and to endure. And in fact, we see that that endurance that comes is very much the same idea that comes with a race, with preparing for a long distance race, not a hundred yard sprint. Do they do hundred yard sprints anymore? Um, it, not a short sprint, whatever the short sprints are these days, right? Um, but it's, it's a marathon. It's a triathlon. It's, a, it's an ultra marathon, right? It's these weekend long runs. And you don't run that without preparation. But you run that when you're ready and when you've de, uh, endured um, the trials, even for practice, to be ready for the time that will come. And that's the endurance that we have. Now, that endurance leads us to continue in, in following and doing and executing the will of God. We're in fact called in verse 36 to do the will of God, to endure it, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So many times people may say, well, I don't know what the will of God is. Sure you do. Everybody has that same understanding, can get that same understanding by studying. There's no special revelation. There's nothing that comes to any one individual that's inconsistent with what God has told us in his word. And that's the will of God that we have. And in fact, we're told here that when we have done it, when we have followed the will of God above our own, we will receive what was promised. And all of what was promised, that reward, um, is coming. Verses 37 and 38 are a very interesting uh, passage. If you, some translations, some printing of the, the New Testament actually puts different margins or a different font for quotations. Um, and so verses 37 and 38 may actually be indented or in a, all caps or in a different font, indicating it's a quotation from a different passage. And in fact, this is a quotation from Hab Habakkuk chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. So let's turn over to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Take a little excursus for a minute. So at the beginning of Habakkuk, we see that the Chaldeans were actually being used to punish Judah. We see that the Chaldeans were at the doorstep and the Judean, uh, Judeans were falling apart. They were falling away. They were crumbling. They were, they were losing their confidence. And so we see in chapter 2, sorry, in chapter 1, Habakkuk is asking, what will happen? Why aren't you with us? Why aren't you protecting us? Call to God. Much like Job's challenge of God, where are you? 
we are falling apart here. We're, we're perishing. And where are you and where is your protection? In chapter 2, God answers the question of Habakkuk. And in chapter 2, in verses uh, 2, it says, The Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. So if we take that and we lay that side by side with what we see in Hebrews chapter 10, let's see how the difference in the translation is. For yet in, in verse 37, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Now if we turn back to Habakkuk chapter, chapter 2 um, and verse 3, it says, the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. The vision that was promised to Habakkuk is one of God's salvation, is one that will come for the, for the Jews and the salvation that God has promised. And yet what we see here is that the, the author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, takes that passage and applies it as Christ is the one who will come. And Christ is coming. He will come and he will not delay. And in fact, that is the promise. So the writer of Hebrews is taking and addressing the Hebrews using the passage that would have been familiar to them, but reframing it as Christ is the realization of the promise. And in fact, in verse 38, if you look back in your, your passage, it may not look like verse 4 of Habakkuk chapter 2. And the reason for that is because the quotation is actually taken, taken from the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, um, it says, if it, if it draws back, my soul is not pleased in it, but the just shall live by faith. And so we see here that the many times uh, quotations from the Septuagint differ from the, the text that we have in our Old Testament. And that's what we see here in verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If we fail, if we if we try to use our own strength and our own endurance and try to do it our own way, we will fail. We will fall short and we will shrink back. And when we shrink back, it says, my soul has no pleasure in him. We will not be pleasing to God. So we're called to stand up, to stand firm, and to have the endurance that we're called for. And in fact, in 37 and 38, it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the readers to see what the message is and the promise that's given. And in fact, the writer finishes the chapter in verse 39 by saying, but all of these caveats that were written before, there's a 180 degree stop, but there's a difference. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, where is the shrinking back? This is, again, the only time that this is used here in this format, in verse 39. We are not those who shrink back. And we see the translation in verse 38. Um, it only occurs a couple of other ways in the New Testament. In Acts 20, 20, and 27, you don't shrink back from preaching the gospel. In Galatians 2 and 12, um, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles because he was afraid of the Jews. Um, and that was shrinking back. 
These are examples that we are called to not follow, but to learn from as others. And in fact, we see that the destruction that's mentioned here in the preserving of the soul, um, we do not shrink back uh, to destruction. And that destruction there is not um, a, a small matter. Um, it's ultimately a final destruction with an irrevocable end. It's the same word that's used in Revelation chapter 17 about the beast in verses 8 and 11, that the beast will be destroyed. And in fact, in Matthew 7 and 13, a passage that we all know, the gate is wide and the way is easy, leading to destruction. And it's that same idea that we have here, as the destruction is the opposite of the preserving of the soul. And so we're called as believers to have faith and to have the perseverance. If we turn over one chapter, uh, two chapters, to chapter 12. In the very first verse of chapter 12. And if we, if we take into account chapter 11 being the chapter of the hall of faith. And we finish in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And it's that same endurance that the writer of Hebrews is calling believers to have here in this chapter. There may be difficulties. There may be times when you fall down. But be of good faith. Be, be confident, not in yourself, but in the promise that God has, that God will be there for you. And the examples that we have around us of people who are willing to stand up for their beliefs and to be ridiculed for them, realizing that there's a lasting reward and a promise that we have in the hereafter to look forward to. We're called to continue to remember that promise and to remember that gift that God has given to us. So as believers, we're called to do that. Um, if there's anyone here who is not a believer, who needs to put Christ on in baptism, and to recognize and to realize the promise that God has made for us, this is an opportunity to do so. If you have put on Christ in baptism, um, but you find yourself struggling, you find yourself waffling, you find yourself not having the confidence and that as a believer you're called to have, then we are here to help you. We are here to support you and to be there with you and to give you that confidence and to suffer with you if need be so that you can follow what God would have you to do in your life. Won't you make your needs known as together we stand and sing.